Hello and welcome to Step Into Light. I'm Michelle Jones and I have my good friend Tim Hewlett with me today. Tim, thank you for being here. My pleasure. I am honored to be here. Okay. I am excited to have you here because you are one of my favorite people to talk to. So I know that our listeners will enjoy being able to like peek into our conversation. So this week we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Usually we follow along and come follow me and we're in the scriptures and kind of pulling things out from there. This week as we're looking ahead toward general conference this coming weekend, we I thought it would be great to have a conversation about the restoration, about Joseph Smith, um, and my kind of reference point for why I'm picking that goes all the, goes back six months ago. President Nelson in the October 2019 conference said, in the springtime of the year 2020, it will be exactly 200 years since Joseph Smith experienced the theophany that we know as the first vision. God the Father and his beloved son Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph, a 14-year-old youth. That event marked the onset of the restoration, restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ in its fullness, precisely as foretold in the Holy Bible. Thus, the year 2020 will be designated as a bicentennial year. General Conference next April will be different from any previous conference. In the next six months, I hope that every member and every family will prepare for a unique conference that will commemorate the very foundations of the restored gospel. And just before we started recording, we were talking about how very different the conference already will be just in the change in location and how many people will be gathered in. So I'm sure that's just the tip of the iceberg for what we'll see. So here is one thing that I've noticed about you, Tim. You are so fun and energetic and kind of lighthearted. Like I think most people would think that you're just not very serious about a lot of things just from casual conversation. Is that a fair assessment? That is a very fair assessment. But I feel like whenever I have chance to talk with you about the prophet Joseph Smith or about our prophets in general, there's a spark of something very different, kind of a deeper passion for these good men. And that's the main reason why you first came to mind as someone that I would like to invite here. Although you're fun, is a definite bonus, but that little spark of something that I saw there is something that I really admire and think is cool. Well, I appreciate that. I, I find uh, more joy with the history of our church and uh, the joy that uh, Joseph shared with a lot of people that's an exciting part. And uh, having an experience traveling with an apostle in Japan, I was able to see how lighthearted many of these brethren and sisters are as when it comes outside of them speaking in conference. That those are not mutually exclusive. No. To be men of God of profound inspiration and revelation and even vision, and yet also having a very human personality to them as well, yes. which is for sure the case with our prophet Joseph. So my first question here is, when did you first begin a more serious study of the prophet Joseph Smith? Beyond like our primary introduction of the prophet and the first vision? Well, mine came really in the MTC, and I was blessed to actually serve a mission because I was not in a good situation before I left. And I needed to get away from my environment, and the challenge was, you know what, let's just see what a mission does. It'll be an escape from my lifestyle. And so I remember going to the MTC. I had never read the Book of Mormon fully. I maybe to third Nephi about 45 times mm -hmm. was about it, but... Or, Third, chapter third, chapter three of First Nephi. I was going to say, to make it past the Isaiah chapters is an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, that's so. not, that did not happen. <laughs> and I remember they gave us a test when I first got into the MTC, and they said, this is not going to be graded, 
or studied, and they handed out this this literal sheet of paper, and we had to write our answers down. And I remember looking at that, and everything seemed so foreign. And I remember the first question had to do with, what is the difference between exaltation and eternal life? I was so terrified by not knowing any of the questions that I was like, I need to step my game up. And so I became like this sponge of knowledge. I would go to class the next day and surprise everybody. Like, did you know there was this guy named Ammon that was cutting off arms? Like it was, it was so exciting to me. It was like I was discovering it for the first time. And so I think I gained a love of that. And it was at that time that I recalled something my dad said years ago, which never really hit me until I got the MTC, which was when he passes on, he will know the prophet Joseph and will embrace him for what he provided. And so I think it was at that moment I realized I wanted to know more about Joseph Smith and our church history. It was really such a brave thing for Joseph to step into the role that he did because there was no one that had put the path before him. In other words, every prophet that came after that had some kind of framework to work within. And for Joseph, every step of it was the first time, the first thing for everybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And people always give credit to Brigham Young about the settling of Utah and expanding. All of that knowledge came from what he learned from Joseph. Joseph outlined all of the city ordinances and how to populate and how to organize a city was all gained from Joseph, what Brigham did. So yeah, Joseph was definitely the the founder of that whole process. Okay, well, let's go back to the very beginning for Joseph Smith and, and really the beginning of what President Nelson was saying about the 200-year mark. So the 200-year mark goes back to 1820. Sometimes I still have trouble reminding myself that it's 2020. So really a full 200 years. So he went into this grove of trees near his house and he had this miraculous response to prayer. And this event was obviously really significant to Joseph Smith, but what makes it significant for us? Did you have any thoughts about that? The the one thing that stands out most to me was the one thing that Joseph said that sets our religion apart from everybody else, and that is a direct revelation from God. That it doesn't just belong to the prophet or the apostle, that each of us can have an intimate, not only relationship with our Heavenly Father, but gain an, an, a sincere knowledge of the Savior. And so the fact that the heavens aren't closed and it's not some impossibility, we actually discussed this with my kids today, that what Lehi envisioned in the Book of Mormon and what Nephi saw and Alma and all these prophets, even down to Joseph Smith, each of us can receive such an experience. And so I think for me it was the heavens are open and you can not only receive this divine inspiration from God and the Holy Ghost, but you can truly be forgiven of your sins in a special experience. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. I remember walk, I was taking a walk and starting to ponder these things. This was a few months ago, sort of maybe right after the October conference. And I was listening to Joseph Smith's first prayer. I think that's the name of the hymn, the, oh, how lovely was the morning. Yeah. And I was kind of pondering like, what makes this significant for us? And it just, with so much clarity, the thought came because Joseph Smith showed us how to gain access to God. Like he showed us the way, and it, that's why it's so important for each one of us to study it, because it's basically an outline for what we can do. And it reminded me of a phrase that Joseph has um, used, and I think it applies here, that in many ways we live below our privilege in terms of being able to access heaven and access God. So 
that was for sure the thing that came to me the most that we can gain from that specific experience from Joseph. Okay, this one I'm very excited to see what you will say. And maybe we'll have different answers or maybe they'll be the same. But do you have a favorite event from the early days of the restoration? I think we need to go plural there because okay. there's about 3,000 events right? that I absolutely love with Joseph. And uh, I know before we began, we were kind of talking about the personality of Joseph. Not only was he this charismatic person, but he did have a temper. And sometimes the way that he got, you know, workers loved him because he would force other boys to work. And a lot of that came from the use of his fists. And so he would threaten kids and they would be terrified. And so they would actually work hard. And so Joseph was this tremendous supervisor, whether it was working in the field. And that goes back to when Brigham Young, when he was when he joined the church and he came down to meet the prophet Joseph, the reason why he was so sold, he already knew the church was true based upon his experience, but he saw Joseph and he looked and he saw his ax. His ax was so perfectly sharp that he, he, he knew the prophet took care of his tools, his ax, and the way he was able to swing an ax knew that he was a hard worker and not just somebody set to be served in some capacity. He was willing to work with his people. And that was just an, an awesome story that stands out to me that he didn't mind working hard and that he was similar to us where he would lose patience with 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 other brethren or he would be quick to anger, but he was also quick to forgive. And that's kind of the one thing that really stands out, out to me, even when he said, you never know my heart, that he truly did have a testimony. If he didn't experience the things he said, that he said he saw, then he wouldn't believe it. And right? so he was more like us than I think we led on to believe. I've, I've always admired so many instances where Joseph Smith forgave people that I think would have been so hard for any one of us to be asked to forgive, like outright betrayal of people that were his like close, close associates and the devastating consequences that had that, that put his life in jeopardy and the lives of the saints. And yet he was always so quick to reach out in forgiveness i'm thinking of ww phelps and mm. many others that were of that example so i absolutely love that and and i think in in addition to that anger that you said that we see that that there was such a compensatory like just i just felt like as i've studied joseph that this feeling of this sort of loving without restriction or without holding back or without demanding from others. He was just so open-hearted in that way. And I love that. I do too. And the, the, one of the great things is he never had more than $20 at one time his whole life. And I, one of the stories that stands out is he was sitting down to eat dinner and they, Emma had made a Johnny cake for he and his kids. And he sat down to dinner and before he prayed, he just looked down at his meal and looked at his kids. And they're trying to get excited about this Johnny cake, with the, which is just flour and water. It baked, right. right? And Joseph said, he said the prayer and he said, dear, dear Lord, we thank you for this Johnny cake, but we would like something better. Amen. <laughs> and as soon as he said amen, there was a knock at the door. And just at the door, someone delivered a ham, some bread and some pie treats. And he looked over at Emma and he said, see, Emma, God also wants us to enjoy the fruit of other people's labors. And he was just so excited. And it was such a simple prayer. It was not this exotic prayer at mealtime. He was grateful for what he had, but he asked for something else. And it kind of leads on to what Joseph had said that is one of my favorite things is that we must weary the Lord until he blesses us. 
his direct statement was, weary the Lord until he blesses you. Meaning we can, as long as we continue to pray and ask for God's help, we have to weary him with our cries and he will bless us eventually with what we are asking for. With what we need. Yeah. With, with not only what we need, but what we desire as well. And I love it as, as, as you were sharing that story, I thought there was no pretension about him. No. And that is so great. Because that can be a whole challenge unto itself, I think, for people who are in positions of authority, really, to kind of separate themselves from their people. And I never got that sense from Joseph that he separated or put himself above people. Right. And it's, you know, you look back at what his mom, Lucy, had written about him, that he was the least of of her children that were inclined to books. He had less than two years of formal education. And even Emma had mentioned that for him to sit down and read a letter, let alone write a letter, was exhausting. Like she couldn't handle him reading some letter to her because he was so slow in his speech and how he was able to to write and read. And so it just makes it more of a miraculous experience what Joseph accomplished because it wasn't Joseph. It was the Lord and the Holy Ghost and Heavenly Father guiding that, right. that path. Okay, so I'm going to share with you one of my favorite events from the early days of the restoration. Like if I could go and attend an event, Mm -hmm. the Kirtland Temple dedication every time. I think that would have been phenomenal to be a part of for so many reasons. There were so many things that came out of that. I mean, the spiritual gifts that were in abundance, just um, the visitations, the Savior coming. I just think that would have been a marvelous day and it was a marvelous day and I sure hope that in the heavens I was watching on because that was a day not to be missed. It's so. I love that. And what's what's amazing to me is what God had asked the saints to do for what was only a few week time to experience the Kirtland Temple before it was turned into a barn shortly after and they were kicked out of the of Kirtland, Ohio. So I the fact that God thought so highly of having a temple for his saints to receive higher education, higher learning, endowments, was uh, a note unto itself that even though it would only last for a short period of time, it was so significant to the saints. Because the things that they learned and gained became the foundation for what came next. I feel like that is so true in our lives sometimes, that we are asked to put forth so much energy and effort, and that doesn't mean that what results from it is something that will have permanence through the rest of our life. That's not the purpose. The purpose isn't for us to have that experience forever. The purpose is what did we learn from it and how does that change who we are as we go forward? So I think that that's like, I like that you brought that thought in. Okay, any other events that have to be named before we move on? Well, what's, what's funny is the design of the temple, I remember when... They were the apostles were meeting together on the design and how it should look. I mean, God was so specific with how things were done. They dedicated the cornerstone when the sun was at the highest point at the time of year. You know, in that that June month, on a certain day, it was it was so regimented because it was so holy and so sacred. And what was funny with that was they were trying to find means of how to build it. And and I I believe it was. Uh, uh, was it Lorenzo Snow that said if we were to use the widow's might of what temple cost the most, it was that Kirkland, Ohio temple. That um, what was funny is they were looking for architects to come and build this, and Brigham Young showed up with Joseph and he said, you know, there's a guy named Artemis Millet in Canada who's this amazing architect. And Joseph then said to Brigham, go baptize him, 
have him bring a thousand dollars and have him come down and design our temples. And it was the guy, he wasn't a member of the church. Brigham just knew him from being in Canada. And Joseph sent him on this mission to not only go and convert this man, but then have him bring a thousand dollars, which at that time is an insane amount of money. And sure enough, Joseph with, with no fear, knowing what the Holy Ghost was inspiring him, passed on to Brigham Young and Brigham Young not only fulfilled that mission, but Artemis Millet became a very big aspect in our church history as far as design and what he provided. Well, and as you were te- talking about the widow's might, I was thinking about all of the sacrifice that had come to that moment and that there, that those are connected, that the huge sacrifice that went forth and like personally for each of the individuals that was there and then the resulting spiritual growth was tremendous. And that seems like I would really like it if that wasn't the pattern because sometimes that sacrifice is a really high price. Oh, for sure. But that is the price. That seems to be a pattern that God has for us that we have to lay it all on the altar in order to get the understanding that we seek. Well, what was so unique about that temple dedication is after that dedication, this was at a time when the saints were being so per- so persecuted in Kirtland. They were being beaten and tarred and feathered and they were burning down houses. I mean, there's countless stories I know in the saints book that talk about women and fathers that are taking their children out bare feet into the snow and walking mm. miles. And Joseph, for that almost a year period, did not receive any revelation on how to combat that persecution. And it frustrated Joseph. Like anyone else would be frustrated. Absolutely. Like, God, why... I mean, we're doing everything we can here. Why are we going through this? And it was a unique experience that I learned that God doesn't always give us the answers. And so we have to resort back to the previous Mm. advice we were given or admonition that God had given us. And so Joseph kept relying back on that with barrier afflictions with with strength and and, uh, courage. And after that dedication, it was almost like after Christ appeared to the Nephites, there was a time frame of just not only peace, but men and women and children were all prophesying and telling things. And they thought the Savior was going to come because it was such a miraculous time. They thought this was the end. They had right. accomplished everything. And I mean, I'm sure in that moment it felt pretty glorious right. as though that was what was coming. Yep. Mm, I love that. Okay. 200 years is a long time. Which of Joseph's experiences from 200 years ago are relevant in our life now in 2020? That's kind of a weird question, but I thought it was interesting because maybe I was thinking of my teenagers and how they just are like, yeah, 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 these stories are from like a long time ago, but how does that affect my life? I'm trying to figure out online school because my, I, cause I can't attend school right now. Like I have all these worries and stresses and my work schedule and right. How do I connect with my friends who can't leave their house? Right. So how do... Joseph's experience, like how is that relevant to us? Did any thoughts come to mind with that one? I kept, when I first read the question, excuse me, I kept referring back to when Christ, when the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were accusing him when he was healing people and they kept persecuting him and, and saying these hateful things. And Christ finally said, um, is it easier to tell somebody, take up your bed and walk? or your sins are forgiven you. And I kind of go back to that. It's so relevant for us today because there is several accounts where Joseph is forgiven, which you kind of think is a, 
a weird thing when Christ appeared to him on the yes. breast like the first thing he said your sins are forgiven you and I thought that is so powerful or even in the first vision when Joseph was seeking forgiveness or when Moroni came he was praying for forgiveness and it's it's unique that the first thing that the Savior said was your, your sins are forgiven you and I can't imagine the joy that that would bring in a chaotic world today that we can't see friends we have these rules everything has to be online or you know we have to even this conference coming up no one is attending right and how great would it be to hear the savior or or some uh, some being come to you and say your sins are forgiven you like what joy that would bring i think in a chaotic world when it's so scary and we're unsure and and we don't know what's going to happen when you can hear your sins are forgiven you, like everything seems to fall in place. Because like, cause it's a very anchoring thing. Yes. If you know that, that that is aligned and that you are in good standing with God, that gives you like this really unique anchor to your life that means that all the other commotion around doesn't have very much power to move you about because you are anchored to God. And I think it's hard to feel confident in being anchored to him when we question whether we are in good standing with him. I think that that can make us separate ourselves more than he would like for us to. I don't think that he drives us to separate ourselves from him. He would, he, like regardless of what our state is or if we have sins that we have not repented for, he doesn't want that to drive us away from him. He actually, the opposite, wants that to bring us to him so that our sins can be forgiven and we right. can be close with him. I, I totally so, agree. I think that's really cool. So the thing that I thought of was kind of odd, and I even like discounted it and was like, no, I'm not going to talk about that. Like that feels really weird. But then the thought kept coming, so here we are. We're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share my thought with it. Um, and part of it goes back to, you know, in recent years, we've become more aware as a church that there were actually many different versions of the first vision in terms of like an actual written account of it. And... Um, some have wondered why there were various accounts and why they kind of vary from each other. And, you know, the church has a really great podcast out about the first vision. Like there's a lot of great information about it. Um, but the where this I feel like became relevant here and now or here to me, like maybe I should make this really specific, not like to everybody, but we each have our own way of receiving and recognizing revelation and on occasion, I have had revelation come to me in a very visual way. And I have seen it in my mind's eye, like a visual explanation of what I'm studying. And I consistently marvel, like it's elegant in its simplicity, like it's beautiful and there's total clarity. I feel like I completely understand everything that's being shown to me. And then I turn to want to share it with my husband or to even like journal about it. And I'm like, uh... How do you put it into words? No, I, right. I'm like, oh, no, no, trust me. It was really amazing because it was like, yeah, like anything I say just makes it sound so simplistic and not really profound and not that clear. Like it really is hard to put into words, I think, these things of God. And so I feel like it's relevant. I think one of the ways that we can make some of these experiences more more relevant is to recognize that... Joseph, I think, was struggling with a very similar thing, and a lot of these early saints were, and that by having that perspective, it may make us understand them and make them more relatable to us. Therefore, their experience is more relatable, like we can learn and gather from them better. 
I don't know. That's very <laughs> odd and interesting. But I thought I relate to that. And that sounds weird to say I relate to Joseph Smith, but I do like I have compassion for the people who are critical that he couldn't put it into words accurately 10 minutes after it happened. Like, I oh, for sure. I and don't know how anyone would do that. No, and I, I agree with that. And I was I actually t- wrote a note down when you were talking about being able to try and describe what was powerful to you. Mm-hmm. It just seems like you're lowering the sacredness of the experience by trying to communicate it. And I, when Oliver Cowdery wrote in his journal, and it's in the, the Pearl of Great Price, when Peter, James, and John, or when John the Baptist appeared to give him the Aaronic Priesthood, the word he used was, I can't even begin to clothe in the English language mm. what I experienced. And, and this was just seeing John the Baptist. And so right. you can imagine why Joseph didn't speak on the first vision for 20 plus years, because it was... It was so sacred to him. And Joseph even mentioned that, that the reason why so many saints aren't given such experiences is because they end up telling the world about it. Whereas, and then Joseph in the next line, kind of a, a, not a mockery, but kind of a humble, prideful thing said, I can keep a secret until doomsday. You'd think after having this first vision, he comes back and he's by the fireplace and he's exhausted because of his body is just sure. worn down. And his mom asked if he was sick, and he said, you know, um, never mind, all is well. Right. And I, I've learned that Presbyterianism is not, is not, so is understated. not true. It's so, so understated. Under- and, and, and he kept all these things sacred. Even when the missionaries would go out and preach the, the, the word to the people, they mentioned his experience with Moroni in the Book of Mormon well before the first vision. No one even knew about the first vision. And so we get all these different counts because... Joseph was, in a sense, dumbing it down based upon the audience he was around. It was so sacred to him, he did not want to blab to the world what, how amazing of an event that was. And part of, I think, what we can learn from that is that there are times when we'll be called upon to share things that we've experienced. And maybe in those moments, that's when the words will come mm-hmm. to be able to bring the spirit and to be able to, like add a witness that that we have a witness that we have a testimony and experience that can strengthen somebody else but if we're just sharing it to say hey this cool thing happened to me uh, maybe that's maybe that is part of you know that joseph had that discernment i think is very evident right even at such a young age he didn't know much i mean at that point that he had the first vision he didn't know that he was going to be leading the church, I don't think, at that point. And so it really got unfolded for him one step at a time. And every once in a while, I find myself feeling frustrated because I'll think, okay, I feel frustrated because I can kind of see a vision for what I need to be accomplishing and doing. Like I kind of get a sense for what my purpose is. And yet here I am just in my everyday life. And my husband reminded me, well, after... Moroni came to visit Joseph, he plowed a field for another four years, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes we're just plowing our field and that's okay. That is okay. That is exactly what we need to be doing. Well, I I think that's relevant to today because that relates more to a lot of us. I mean, even in the Book of Mormon, the the brother of Jared, he was chastised by the Savior for not praying for for four years. I mean, this is the guy that saw the finger of the Lord. Right. And saw the Lord and, you know, he touched the stones and then, you know, he, he prevented the languages from being changed and they were able to communicate, he and his family, and then nothing for three years. And then the Savior came and said, hey, what's the deal? 
Right. Where have you been? Like I do all these things you ask me to do and you don't even say hi. Check in. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, there's something to be said of that, that God still loves, not only loves those people, but desperately wants to communicate with those people because they are just as precious to him as everybody else. A hundred percent. And maybe even sometimes I think even not more so, but I think when I look at my children who I love like dearly, they all would say something different if you were to ask who is my favorite, right? So that's a non-issue. I love them all dearly, but there's something about that child who is struggling that brings more of my focus and attention and tenderness to the front. Sure. And and it and it doesn't take away from any of the other children, but as a mother as I've been able to see that, I feel like there's something in me that resonates that I think that that's how our heavenly parents see us. That when we struggle, they are not turned away from us. They're not kind of maybe rejecting us or disgusted with us that actually they are reaching out to us ever more because they are our parents and they yearn to be with us in that struggle. I love that where maybe when we feel like God isn't paying as much attention to us when we're doing our best, maybe part of that is because he knows we're in a good place. And so we do need to remember that we are still loved, but maybe God is putting a lot of that energy into those that are struggling. And so Maybe there's something to be said of that. I, I, I like that. And maybe there's something to be said that when, when, when we're not getting a lot of that in a time where we're just kind of steady and going along, mm-hmm. that the Lord just has confidence in us. He knows that we are on a good path and in a good place, and he's giving us some freedom to exercise our agency. I like that. And, so- to, and, and, and just to continue along that path. There's no intervention needed. You're doing great. Cheering you on from the sidelines. Right. Good work, kid. And, and maybe that goes along the lines when we don't get an answer to what job we should take. Maybe we continue on that path until we get that resounding no. God is not in the details, even though we may want him in the details, because we are on that right path and continue on until you get that yelling, screaming no that tells you not to. Right? Some kind of intervention there. And it and it does remind me, my oldest child just turned 18 not that long ago, whom you know and mm-hmm. love, I know. But it is interesting how parenting shifts. And I kind of think maybe as we mature spiritually, some of that parenting from heaven may shift a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Like I still offer my full love and support. And, you know, it's interesting as I have pulled back from wanting to give this son advice in every detail of his life I find that he appreciates that freedom but that he's actually more likely now to come to me when he has a specific I call it an adultish question right how do I file my taxes mom like (laughs) these are the kind of questions that now he'll come but I think you know just as we do that with our children as they grow into adulthood it's it's easy to see how maybe that pattern may be similar for us as we spiritually mature I interesting See, and that's, that's the one thing I struggled with. I think on the mission, you were given like that daily path, right? You, you couldn't really deviate from your objectives and the things you were, you were supposed to do as a missionary. And then when you come home, there is no direction whatsoever outside of, you know, maybe what your parents are recommending or sure. friends or whatever else. And so I remember coming home and thinking boy, I sure wish I had a mission president here that I could ask questions to or give me direction on moving forward with. And so I think that says a lot when you when you come back and look for the 
questions on how to file your taxes and things. That's that's a that's a, a longing as a parent that you desperately want. And by giving more freedom, you're essentially getting them closer to you. It's true. You know, it's it's 100% true. The more that I have been able to do that, the more he comes to us. And, and the Lord knows his children. He knows us. He knows what we need. And he knows what's going to bring us closer to him. And if that's giving us more space, then that's what he's going to do. Because he's like the perfect parent. <laughs> the he knows perfect. just how to do that. Okay. Um, Joseph faced tremendous opposition with his divine assignment. Do any events stand out to you in particular? There is, yeah, there's a few that stand out as far as um, the opposition. I would think the hardest one um, would be when he was given the plates. He had to carry this load from the entire world by himself. He could not show his wife. He could not show his parents. He could not show Oliver and Martin and his, all those people that helped him write the translation. He could not show anybody. And so you have all these people going, you have it in this box. Why don't you just show us and, right. and, and just end this charade. And so for, you know, for that, that eight month time frame, he literally from the world had to keep this by himself and he could not rest for a moment from moving the plates i you know one story that that comes to me is when he was inside he had this feeling to move and he had it hidden outside in a log and he went and moved it from the log and as he came back to the door he looked at the log the log was destroyed someone had come in within the minute he moved that and destroyed the log and it was he constantly had to be on his demand and that was part of the reason why by moroni had him come back several years because to understand how important this record really was. This was going to be the record that that brought the testimony of the Savior to every person on the earth as a co-companion to the Bible. It's a very lonely assignment. Very lonely. For that season of time. And, and, I, th- and I think when, he, when they finally were able to show the three witnesses and the eight witnesses, I think the exhaustion finally hit him and he broke down that he finally could share this thing that he carried by himself. And I, I look at that at being anytime I've been alone in my life, I've never been truly alone. And there's an example of that loneliness that the savior shared on the cross when heavenly father pulled the spirit away Mm. and the savior began to weep, you know, why have you forsaken me? And I think Joseph not to the extent the Savior did, but he was able to experience that. And I think every prophet, and there'll come a time when all of our lives where we have to share that load alone. And some people it happens early, some people it happens later in life. I think that's that's when you have fully gained a testimony of the Savior Jesus Christ by bearing that sorrow, that that challenge, that trial, whatever it is, alone and be able to understand what the Savior went through, just a portion of what he went through. Yes, I've definitely had that experience in my life. And longing in those moments to wish, and knowing that there were people in my life that were willing to carry it. There were people in my life that were willing to carry my load for me, but in those moments it was mine to carry, and nobody could carry it for me. It was between me and my Savior, and as sort of arduous and treacherous and kind of awful as it was that is the moment when I came to truly have an intimate relationship with my savior was through that so I found that to be true in my life 
When I look at these oppositions, and maybe this is because I'm a mother, I don't know, but his sorrow over losing his children always stands out to me. And I think how unfair, because that wasn't directly related to the work of establishing the church, right? That's not just Satan's opposition bringing against the church and questioning and newspaper articles against him or, you know, whatever that was, that it wasn't related to his calling as a prophet and that his calling as a prophet did not exempt him from that personal sorrow. And I think that's always been really profound to me that he was asked to do both. I, that would be so tough. I mean, I you look at it, he never had money. He had to work to not only provide means to eat and survive, but he also had to restore the gospel and the keys and those things and, and serve a mission. And on top of that, I mean, being in and out of jail, he was arrested, was it 40 some times and thrown in prison. And, and you think all this wasted time that he feels that he's going through when he can't even provide for his own kids and his own wife and and so I, the, the amount of trials, one thing that really, you know, I, this last year I had the experience to go to Palmyra for the first time and see the sacred grove. And one thing that stood out to me was that I went and saw Martin Harris's house. Okay. And it's kind of off the beaten path. And it, and it kind of made me sad because um, I relate to Martin Harris and I relate to Oliver Cowdery and even, you know, David Whitmer that it, that had fallen away from the church because right. they, in a sense, battled with Joseph. And I, and I honest, and I so share empathy with Joseph giving Martin the manuscript. Martin had mortgaged his farm. Right. He was well-known diplomat in the area. And people thought he was crazy for following this Joseph Smith, who was a, you know, treasure hunter. And I, I completely empathize with Joseph where he went to God, not once, not twice, three times saying, this guy's paying, he's going to pay for the trap, but you know, the printing of the book of Mormon. Lord, he, he's paying all the bills. He's, he's, he's <laughs> keeping me afloat. Like we got to help him out. You got, and his, you know, and I understand his wife was, was, was wanting that reassurance because she was giving up her status as well. And there's nothing like, I, I, I understand that feeling. I, I feel like that is such a hard thing and God, you know, please let just, they're doing everything for me. I have nothing. Like I am literally have no money to my name. I'm living in my in-laws house in the corner of their farm. They hate me. My own family's being persecuted. Like I have this, just let me help Martin Harris. And so I, and I, and I don't blame Martin either because he, he needed the reassurance and he not only got the reassurance, but then I look at what Joseph went through for making that choice and some may think it's unfair or whatever he went through, but it was a critical learning point for not only him, but for Martin. And the cool thing is Martin and Oliver came back. And I know David Whitmer never came back, but he never denied what he saw, what he experienced, and, and what he believed. And as I look at that, I think that there have been times as I've studied Joseph's life, and I just have such a love for him. I just really feel just a love for him. And so my heart yearns, you know, I'm kind of have, I'm kind of a softy. I have a soft heart for people. And I just 
like want to retrospectively go back and make it better for him. Like, let's just bless him. He he was he, he was already sacrificing so <laughs> yes. much. He was already doing so much. Let's just let him have his family and a nice secure home and help out Emma because Emma's got this super heavy load that she's carrying. And that was clearly not the Lord's way. No. And maybe in some odd way, a reassurance to us that when things don't feel like they're all lining up just how we want them to, it's not necessarily a sign of us being not on the path that God wants us to be on because even his beloved prophet had his struggles and challenges with very practical, real issues. Well, I I think it also shows the loving nature of God. God knew this was going to happen. He talks about it in the Book of Mormon. He knew that Joseph would want these manuscripts. It was going to be lost. And it was, if anything, it was not just a learning experience for him, but it was also an additional love of how much God allows us to fall and will continue to forgive us and bring us back and allow us to continue to carry on the important mantle, whether that's a parent or a prophet or a mission leader or whatever it is that we have in this life to bear, we can always come back to the path no matter how many times we fall. Amen. And aren't we thankful for that? Uh, I know I am. I know I'm super thankful. Okay, so let's talk about some of the teachings or revelations because Joseph Smith was a revelatory prophet. Um, are there any specific revelations or teachings that we have because of Joseph that are important in your life? I mean, that's such a broad question because really we could say, well, all of them are. But does anything stand out to you? Before, just weeks before he was arrested and taken to Carthage jail, he gave the King Follett Discourse, which is one of my favorite moments that Joseph taught as as a preacher. And uh, the one thing was probably the one thing people considered him blasphemous for, and that is as man is God once was and as God is man may become. Mm. And it was this plurality of gods that men and women can become like their heavenly parents and is all based upon our relationship, one, with Jesus Christ and two, how much we repent because we all fall short of the glory of God. And so we must all repent everyone. And, uh, I think that was, that was the one glimmer of hope that Joseph really gave was that not only can you repent, but you can repent so perfectly that you can become as God. And it, and one thing that I love that that understanding brings to us so many other things. And one of which I almost think of it as our spiritual DNA. Like it is literally within us, our eternal spirits, that divinity we have within us, like God-like DNA. And so that is our potential to grow into that role and all of the blessings and capabilities that come along with that. We are capable of so much more than I think we give ourselves credit for most of the time. But if we can remember even just a hint of that spiritual DNA that we have, we can do a lot more than we think we can. I agree. Um, I love Joseph's curiosity. It's one of the things that I think is super cool about him. Um, Much is said of his uneducated background, which is totally accurate. But Joseph had such a keen curiosity about things, and he often went to the Lord with a desire to understand things he didn't understand. And many of the great revelations of the Restoration came from that process. And I think... I love thinking about that as a potential template for us, that if we can 
for instance, I found when I read my scriptures in general, I try to read and be curious at the same time. And I have found that I have so many more insights and that I think the Lord enjoys our curiosity. Just like as parents, when our kids come to us with questions, right? Mm -hmm. Like we kind of in, like, that's it's an exciting. enjoyable thing. We're yeah. like, hey, yeah, you came to me with this. Let's talk about it. Let me teach you what I know. I have to think that our heavenly parents are much the same way when we are curious and we want to understand how they work and how they do the work that they do and how we play into that. So that's something that I think Joseph really modeled for us is how to be curious. And it really doesn't re it And that it really didn't matter that he wasn't very educated because he revealed some of the most profound things that anybody has ever known on the earth. And it didn't matter that he wasn't educated through doing that. I always wonder if Joseph was around today and what he would think about this bicentennial, bicentennial year, 200 years from the first vision. Would he be somewhat concerned or why are you so focused on this my whole mission was to teach of jesus christ and everything that i did was a foreshadow of what jesus christ did and what he will do mm -hmm. and what will become of all of us and and uh, that was kind of the whole point of the book of mormon i know in the, the story that bushman told about someone having a hard time believing the story of the nephites and the lamanites and there's some 19th century you know, wording in the Book of Mormon, sure. and these things like, is it really true? And as he went to the Lord in prayer, the answer that he got was, did it not bring you to me? And so I look at all these things that Joseph did, everything that he was creating to do was to point towards Jesus Christ. And this restoration is exciting and passionate and fun and how much I enjoy studying it is really just an appendage to what we are to become and that is to relate to the Savior, learn more about the Savior, and draw closer to the Savior. And so for me, Joseph Smith, I feel like I've gained a testimony of the Savior because of Joseph Smith. And so that is where my passion has come from. And I think it's hard not to have a testimony of the Savior without having one of Joseph Smith. And you can't have one of Joseph Smith without having one of Jesus Christ. In some ways, as you were talking, this visual of training wheels came to my mind. Mm -hmm. That like the restoration is sort of the support to get us to understand the role of God in our life and of the Savior and all that is to come from there. And because at the end, the church itself as a structure or, or as an organization is not eternal, but our relationship with God and with our Savior is. And so I love how you brought that all together. And in fact, I think that's the perfect like segue to our very last question, which is, how would your life personally be different without the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So bringing it right back to the Savior and his gospel being done. And if you'd like, I can go first or you can go first. I'll let you pick as the guest. Yeah. Um, you go ahead. Okay. I would love to hear your take. Well, really, as I sat and pondered that, it's such a huge question, really, because I feel like it's such an integral part of my life that it's hard to imagine separating anything out from it. But the word that came to my mind was hope. And I think that my life personally, without the restoration to understand my savior is, is that I would not have that hope. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ and its ongoing restoration gives me hope. Hope because of the atonement of Jesus Christ and all that that encompasses, which is so much. Hope because I know that I'm eternal in nature. Hope because I know where to find comfort and counsel. Hope because I know that there are angels that minister to us. Hope because I know that whatever comes, I can have my Savior at my side and I don't have to walk it alone. And hope because of the access that I have to God's power through the ordinances and covenants in the temple. And I feel like hope is that driving force that moves us to action. I think it's such an important piece of the pie for all of the things that come to bring us closer to God, that hope is really what puts us, puts one foot in front of the other because we have a hope in what we know we have. You know, it's funny you say that because I, the first thing I wrote down was a lack of hope if we didn't have the restoration. I completely agree with you wholeheartedly that that hope, sometimes faith doesn't compute with a lot of people, but hope does. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember uh, my mission president saying that. I was so discouraged by having, I had a, a mission companion who was so, um, he had severe depression and I didn't understand why God, like I didn't, I wanted to, I had been, come from such a part of despair from before my mission and bad choices and the wrong path for so long that I finally felt like I had this conversion and I didn't want to waste the Lord's time. And I remember the mission president saying that sometimes, you know, hope is, is the answer. One of you have hope, one of you have faith and it will work together. And like, Mm. it kind of has led into our, my marriage even where there are some things I don't have faith with, but my wife Priscilla does. Or there are some things that she may not understand that she has hope for that I have faith in. And so I think those kind of work hand in hand. I'm reminded one story that stands out with Joseph was uh, when during the whole transition from Kirtland to Nauvoo, he would have these lookouts from the mom. You know, he's tarred and feathered so many times. Mm. And uh, he had a neighbor, neighbor Dima Cunnington. And... Uh, one night about 2 a.m., Dimmick came in and tapped him. He was asleep in his bed and tapped Joseph on the shoulder and said, Joseph, the mom's here. Dimmick, what do I do? I'll tell you what. You go get in my bed at my house. I'll get in your bed. So Dimmick climbed in Joseph's bed and uh, Joseph left. Well, the mob broke in and took Dimmick. It was the middle of the night. They didn't know who it was. They dragged him across the river. And when they got him to the other side, they realized it wasn't Joseph. And the phrase in the journal was their their um, hatred knew no bounds mm. and they beat Dimmick into an inch of his life all while Joseph Smith is asleep in, in his bed in the other bed in Dimmick's bed and Dimmick the next morning came came to cross the river and basically crawled back woke up Joseph still asleep in the morning and he's covered in blood and mm. broken bones and all this tragedy and Joseph woke up and began to sob and he said Dimmick because of this you will never taste of death. I don't know the uh, end. What happened to Dimmick? How he, how he was, how he passed on to the next life. But Joseph had promised him because of that perfect love that he would never taste of death. And I think there's so many stories of this from the Restoration that are so prevalent. Like I just finished the first and second Saints book, and there's stories in there that would just it, it's life changing and life altering and these experiences of these missionaries having no money and going out and no food and no shelter and 
literally what the apostles, the Savior, that the Savior commanded to go and do. And if God and Jesus Christ can appear to a 14-year-old child who didn't understand anything and are willing to show him and forgive his sins, which you think a 14-year-old, what sins could a 14-year-old commit? Right, yeah. And then... It just shows how much God loves all of us. And it was the beginning of really all of our experiences to the final gathering of Israel. And I can't imagine not being a part of this process, being a part of the gospel and in the gathering and in these last days. And we, we hear, you know, we hear all these things happening around the earth and earthquakes and all these things. And to me, it's more exciting. I kind of long for the day when all there's left to do is gather the remaining saints and setting up Zion and, and, and all this excitement. And this all started because a boy was curious and wanted forgiveness. And God will not only offer that to all of us, but we can all have a, a sacred grove experience. And to me, that that is the fulfillment of hope and kind of gives you excitement for what is next. And I think totally going along with that. I love how President Nelson and others have referred to it as the ongoing restoration because it reminds us that we are part of the restoration just as those early saints were and that their privileges are our privileges and that we can have that together. And I wanted to close with a quote from President Nelson. He just recently put up, and I don't know the, the dating for this article, but just yesterday an article appeared on the homepage of churchofjesuschrist.org and was about preparing for the second coming. And President Nelson said, do whatever it takes to strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ by increasing your understanding of the doctrine taught in his restored church and by relentlessly seeking truth. And that phrase is my favorite. And I think that that phrase really encapsulates so much of what Joseph did in his life to relentlessly seek for truth. I, I love that word relentlessly. I, I've experienced that once in my life and that was in the MTC. When I was so afraid of not knowing every answer, I was relentlessly seeking understanding in the scriptures and I, I, I want to be able to continually have that desire. Right. Well, thank you for joining me today, Tim. I'm excited for this general conference. We will uh, all be enjoying that experience separately, but together. Yes, all right. yes, very much so. <laughs> thank you.